feel like you are asking me to decide like whether I'm an adult who's ready to like let go of my childhood fantasy. This is a big character development moment for me. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to our Keep It Fictional book chat presented to you from the Port Moody Public Library. I have with me today my book friends, Fiona, Liz, Corinne, and Sadie. Hello, everyone. And today our topic is magical realism. Now I can see the faces and just before we even went on the air, we were kind of like wondering what exactly is magical realism? And do we actually know what that means? So it seems like because we are all librarians by trade, we all went and did some research to make sure that we all know what we are talking about. So from what I read, it seems like, and anyone here can correct me, it seems like magical realism is sort of described the kind of stories that are very much set in the real world. So very grounded in reality. However, there's some magical or even sometimes supernatural kind of elements in them. And I read a quote which they describe it as, what happens when a highly detailed realistic setting is invaded by something too strange to believe? And these magical elements are often not explained. So unlike a fantasy book, it doesn't explain what these are. They are just there as if they are part of sort of the ordinary life. And very often authors that write in so-called magical realism, they try to use these magical elements to make a point about reality. It could be making a point about the disparity of wealth. It could be criticizing society or the political climate that they are living in. And they're trying to offer us a way to think about maybe what we think is real or maybe what we've always been taught that is how the world works is not necessarily true. So some of the authors that people often associated with magical realism will be Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Salman Rushdie, Franz Kafka, you know, Haruki Murakami. So, you know, books like Beloved, Tiger's Wife, Like Water for Chocolate, those are sort of like considered the standards in sort of the magical realism world. But I think what interests people is that it always gives you, it makes you question what you consider as real. So my friends, what have you, what, what would you like to add to this definition of magical realism? What is it? What is magical realism to you? It's literary fiction that's too cowardly to be fantasy. I, I feel like there is still this kind of like disdain of genre fiction and that they came up with the term magical realism so they wouldn't have to lump these like great authors into the fantasy category. I will admit, I'm biased against the term. I think you, a fantasy is a fantasy. I don't think you get grades of fantasy or like percentages of fantasy. So 
That's my two cents. All right. And I feel like, Sadie, you read quite a few books that you consider as magical realism, right? Like, so to you, what, what appeals to you about that genre? Mm-hmm. And I was actually saying before, before we started recording that um, I thought that I had read many more books that fell into the magical realism genre um, until I did some research and <laughs> learned what maybe the official definition of magical realism actually is. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I, I still have definitely read uh, and do like books that are in that kind of magical realism genre. Um, I think, uh, Corinne, you mentioned urban fantasy, which I think that they often kind of, that's the line. Um, if it's considered fantasy, then it's considered an urban fantasy set in the real world um, with magical elements. Um, whereas magical realism, yeah, it's more literary. It, it, it just has something just a little bit extra, just a little bit mystical and different about um, about the world that you're reading about. And I don't know if I necessarily distinguish them in my mind. As I said, I thought I was reading many more books of magical realism. <laughs> and according to research, I was not. Um, but I do, I definitely enjoy the, I, I think because I can, as a reader of fantasy and as someone who is engaged with fantasy in all of the different media um, formats, what I like about it is that imagining this happening to me. And so imagining a world where all of this is real. And so I think with magical realism and with urban fantasy, that is what I'm able to do more because it is set in the real world. It is set in a place that I can relate to. Whereas I enjoy reading about fantasy worlds, but it's harder for me to take myself out and put myself into that world and, and kind of see myself exploring that world in the same way as if it takes place on the street of a city and there's just mystical elements, I can kind of picture myself in that space a bit more. And, and I enjoy that. I like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the child who still believes that um, one day I'm going to learn that I'm a witch and all of my destinies will become clear to me. So Liz and Fiona, do you have anything to add because I know Liz you read probably a lot of Murakami right so that's kind of your jam so do you have anything to add to this I do agree with um Corinne's assessment that it, it could very well be a genre that was created for those folks who normally would say oh I would never pick up a fantasy book um you know for those who have a huge bias against the word fantasy and what they envision that it entails Magical realism is a nice kind of out, um, say, well, I, I read books grounded in reality. It just happens to have a bit of magic in it. That's interesting because I always think about fantasy as something that is very completely different from the world that I know. It operates in a very different way, especially when you have like these really, really like extensive world building and, and magical system. And I always find that they are like completely different from what I know, even if they could be a commentary on what's happening in the world, but they're very, very different. Whereas I think when I when I think about the kind of magical realism books that I read, it is definitely this world, but it's just something a little weird about it. And it's it could be things that anyone could encounter, like any one of us could come across something that we're like, hmm, that's weird but it still could very well happen. Whereas I find that when I'm reading a fantasy book, it's like, this is not a world that I know. Like I have to get to know you. Like, so I I can see that that to me is how I distinguish sort of the two. 
For me, I distinguish a magical realism book when I'm reading and I'm like, okay, I got this. I understand what's going on. Good story. And then they're like, and then there's, I walk across a giant frog or, and then the baby turned into a turnip. And then you're like, okay, okay. Um, so this is a metaphor or like, they're going to explain it more. And then you get like 50 pages further and you're like, no, they didn't explain it. Okay. I'm reading magic realism. And I usually find that I go through like emotions of like, I hate this. I hate not knowing what's going on. I hate it. And then you get a little bit further and you're like, okay, I like what they did there. It just made me uncomfortable. It's okay. (laughs) I'm just going to pretend I didn't see that turnip baby (laughs) and just move on. Yes. All right. Well, now that we're all clear on what this is, well, let's talk about some of the books that we believe are considered magical realism. All right, Liz, would you like to tell us about your book? It's funny that you mentioned Haruki Murakami uh, because the book that I chose today is by another Japanese author, so another translation into English. And this one is called Before the Coffee Gets Cold. It's by Toshikazu Kawaguchi, and it was translated by Jeffrey Trusolo. Now, what I found really interesting in hindsight was that this book was originally a play. And it was such a popular play that it was then made into, written into a book format. And uh, people loved the book so much as well that they even made it into a film in Japan. So I thought that was uh, super interesting. And in hindsight, um, I can see how that all progressed. Now, this story primarily takes place in a small back alley cafe, walk by it on the street and you might miss it, called Funiculi Funicula. And this coffee shop has been in existence in Tokyo for over 100 years. They make amazing coffee and they have a regular cast of characters that comes into the coffee shop and enjoys not only spending time in there, having a beverage, but also chatting with the proprietors of the cafe. So just like with any other cafe of of literary lore, you'll see various different tropes of people hanging around. Um, For example, in this particular cafe, there's always a woman in a white dress who seated in in the exact same chair at the exact same table, and she is always reading a book. So no matter when you walk into the cafe, she is a fixture essentially. For those who know, Funiculi Funicula is not only a place where you can get great coffee, but it also offers the opportunity to travel back in time. Now, this has been much rumored, and a magazine article was even written about it, but that kind of died off. People um, didn't really get much further with it because you just kind of have to know and get to know the proprietors to have an in on this opportunity. Now, there are some conditions, though, with traveling back in time at this cafe. You can only travel once, so no going back and forth and and trying to hop into different points. Um, You need to only pick one time. You can only sit in a particular seat and you cannot leave your seat. So once you've traveled back in time, there is no getting up and moving around. And also you must return to the present time. You must initiate that return before the coffee 
gets cold. Otherwise, a terrible fate will await you. Now, there are many different stories within this book that are woven together with all of the characters of the cafe. There's the woman who wants to communicate with her boyfriend, to communicate her true feelings to her boyfriend as he's telling her in the cafe that he is leaving the country to go work overseas. There's the nurse who always went to the cafe with her husband, but now he's got Alzheimer's and his memories, including of her, are failing. There is a sister with familial guilt. Her sister would come from out of town to visit her at the cafe and there were just things that had been left unsaid. She wants to say those things that are truly in her heart. And even the cafe co-owner, Kay, wants to get in on the time travel because she has some things of her own that she wants to resolve. So knowing now that the book was written initially as a play, I can see how the various characters who went back in time or wanted to go back in time each had their own act. Uh, this book really beautifully ties everybody's stories together, even though you may not know it at the time. I found this to be a great read for this particular time in the world. It's something that's maybe a little bit lighthearted uh, in terms of getting a glimpse into people's everyday lives and their hearts and feelings, um, but at the same time carrying a little bit of depth to anchor it to that reality, um, you know, against that magic. Being able to relate to these people and maybe triggering that question, if I wanted to go back in time, when would I go? and who would I want to see? So again, that's Before the Coffee Gets Cold, and it's by Toshikazu Kawaguchi. Thank you, Liz. That's been a book on my reading list for like ever. Now I have to go read it. This is actually perfect because we are going to play a little game today. We always have some existential questions. And I figured this time, because we're doing a, going to be doing a little game of would you rather? So maybe we'll just do one question after each book talk. All these would you rather scenarios are all things that may happen if you are a character in a magical realism book, I think. So they're slightly weird, slightly off. So my question, which goes fairly well with Liz's book is, would you rather be able to time travel or to stop time? Like, what's the point of stopping time? Like, how long can I stop it for? Am I just like, pausing it and then I have to go on like after the awkward thing that just happened and I still have to live through it like what's the point of stopping time what's the point uh so I'm gonna go for option uh time travel thank you I would definitely choose to stop time uh, because I think like then that's like my dream to be able to do things and not like have that constant feeling of like it like the value of like time passing so I just like stop time read a whole book make a whole meal like I wouldn't have to deal with anyone else in that time uh like craft find like sleep oh my gosh I would sleep so much um and I also just like worry way too much about the like details of time travel and of course that you could only travel through time and not through space so you know, would you ruin the timeline? It's just too messy. 
The um, original characters in the original TV show of Charmed, I just want Kareen to know, found stopping time very, very useful. They used it on many occasions, and it was very helpful for them in their adventures. <laughs> um, but that being said, I would want to travel through time. <laughs> Um, I see the the benefits of stopping time. I definitely do. And I agree with Fiona having being able to stop time and get things done would be so nice. But as someone who has read time travel fiction for many, many years, I, I feel like I have to say I would like to travel through time because I love the past. I love things in the past. And yeah, so travel through time. I think I'd want to stop time. I feel like as we get older, um, it it just seems that time moves faster <laughs> in some strange way. Um, so I'd like to get stuff done, um, read those books that I've been meaning to read that people have given me and are just sitting decoratively on my shelf. Um, and yeah, and not have the anxiety about, like Fiona was saying, um, Am I going to mess up the fabric of time? Am I going to, um, you know, screw something up that should be happening or should not be happening? Um, yeah, I already have a hard enough time letting go of things that have happened in the past. I don't think using time travel as a crutch would uh, help me of that. I feel like this might be a monkey paw scenario, though, like where the question is, do you age when you stop time? Because then you like, are you just waste? You find out you're just wasting your time, and then you're not with the people you love. Like I don't know, maybe I'm just feeling really pessimistic today. But I feel like there's no good answer. It can be stopping time for everybody involved. Like everybody is just right. It's not just for you, but stopping time for all. Like, are we doing the charmed scenario where it's just like a? Well, that's what I was and you thinking. Like stop the tape. Yeah. Like, like everything around you freezes, but you keep going. Yeah, can come in handy. See, that's the more practical one. I feel like that one's more useful, but I don't know. What, what about you, Virginia? I definitely is going to stop time. <laughs> I think partly I, I feel like also because not just like the time to do things, but also the time to think about things before I open my mouth. I'm not very good at like just saying things, you know, and I feel like if we all have to take the time to stop and think before we talk, I think the world would be a nicer place. Probably so. But I mean, we, we can do that now. We can do that now, people. We can do that now. So, so you would use it kind of multiple times? <laughs> yeah, but like you really have, like it, it helps the people that are more, like they, they, they require, like I know that I, for myself, like it takes me a long time for me to digest something and to think about something before I want to say what I and yet the world doesn't operate that way very often you just need to make those split decisions right now and I'm no good at that so if I can stop time it will help me make better decisions about my life or maybe the world needs to like slow down a little bit maybe we could all slow down the world could also slow down which means someone needs to go stop the time <laughs> which is us which is Fiona and me and Liz <laughs> well, I was gonna say Kareen in those two scenarios, us being able to stop time and the world collectively deciding to slow down, which one's more likely? I, I just, I feel like. <laughs> us stopping time, obviously. <laughs> At least we can take care of ourselves when we stop time. So, yeah. Anyway, well, thank you. That was very interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, we're more of those coming. But first... Let's see what Sadie has brought to for us today. All right. So as I mentioned at the beginning, um, when I started doing my research, 
And looking through my books and thinking I had so many books that would fit the magical realism theme, um, I I realized that I didn't have as many as I thought. Um, But this book is definitely a magical realism book. I read it a few years ago. Um, closer to when it came out. It came out in 2007. And I really, really loved the author. I really, really loved this book. And I've read a ton of um, of other books by her and continue to enjoy her work, even though I haven't read anything in a little while. Uh, so this book is Garden Spells by Sarah Addison Allen. And it follows the Waverly family. And the Waverly family have lived in Bascombe, North Carolina, for generations. They have always kind of been there. And even though they've lived there for generations, they are still kind of outsiders in the community. And the reason for that is that each member of the Waverly family possesses a kind of unusual gift, uh, you might say, such as Eveline, who gives people items or information that seem absolutely unbelievably ridiculous and unnecessary at the time. But maybe days later, months later, years later, that person will realize that that item or that piece of information was exactly what they needed for a certain situation. It was was the exact piece of information, the exact item that they needed. So gifts like that, um, this family has. So they are still somewhat seen as outsiders in their community. Um, So our story revolves around Claire Waverly. And Claire is living in Bascombe. She is a chef and she owns a catering company. Uh, She's doing rather well for herself. Um, She's sort of created a life, even though she is living more or less alone. She has her elderly cousin there, but nobody else. She doesn't let anyone else into her life. And this is a choice that she has made for herself. And the reason that she has made this choice is two things. 10 years ago, her younger sister, Sydney, left Bascombe, vowing to never return. Many years before that, their mother also left Bascombe with no explanation. She just left one night and she never came back. So Claire has decided that she doesn't need close relationships in her life. It is better and safer for her to just keep to herself. So one day, her younger sister, Sydney, comes back. She shows up on Claire's doorstep with a five-year-old daughter with her. She tells Claire that she is running away from an abusive relationship uh, with her ex in Seattle and she needed somewhere to go. So her and Bay have come back to North Carolina. This leads Claire to start re-examining everything that has happened in her life. She's not sure why Sydney is here. She's not sure if she wants Sydney to be here. She is still mad at her. She doesn't really want to make a connection with her. Now, one more interesting thing about the Waverly House is that it has an apple tree in the backyard. Now, an apple tree does not sound interesting. I understand that. But this particular apple tree, if you take a bite of one of the apples, you will be shown some sort of event in your life. You don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know exactly how it's going to happen. But you will be shown some sort of major event in your life. The Waverleys know this. There's rumors in town about this. So people try to sneak into their backyard and eat the apples, uh, which means that they have to bury any fallen apples so that people cannot find them. 
So this magical tree is also a very big part of the Waverly's life, a very big part of the town. So our story focuses on these two sisters. Uh, it focuses on them trying to repair their relationship, trying to build new relationships. It has a little bit of romance in it. Um, it kind of has those familial connections and the, the pain that comes with those familial connections sometimes. The whole story just has that little bit of magic, that little bit of mystical element to it that just gives it something a little bit extra. Uh, so I won't say much more about it, but it is a compelling story, I feel like. Um, so if you do enjoy kind of family stories, um, reading about family dynamics, as well as um, something just a little bit magical, that was Garden Spells by Sarah Addison Allen. Even the cover looks very magical. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And most of her books are kind of like that too, right? There's just this shimmer to it that feels special. Yeah, just something extra, something extra. <laughs> yeah. All right, something extra is our next would you rather question. So Sadie talked about in her book, there's the apple tree that you can see a little future event. So my question for you is, would you rather be able to see what people are thinking all the time? Or would you rather be able to see people's future when you look at them? This is so easy. Um, with my anxiety, my social anxiety, I already think I know what people are thinking all the time. So no, thank you. No, thank you. Um, so yeah, I would rather see the future. That's fine. That's fine. I could like help people. Maybe like, isn't there that, that weird television show from the early 90s where he like read a newspaper with the next day's headlines and then could like change the future? That's what I would want to do. But what if like when you give, you can actually see what they're thinking, they're not thinking what you're thinking that they're thinking at all. Wouldn't that? No, I'm always okay. right. Oh, I'm okay. always right. Fine. <laughs> you already have that power. Great. Okay. I feel like it would go both ways because you could half the people, they wouldn't be thinking what you thought they were thinking, but then the other half of the people, they would be thinking something very different from what you thought they were thinking in not a great way. <laughs> so I feel like it would just kind of balance out in uh <laughs> which people were actually thinking things that you thought they were thinking. <laughs> but I have no idea which one I would choose. I think that is, I feel like seeing people's futures would just be, it would be too, see, that would give me anxiety. Seeing like, if you saw somebody, something horrible happening to someone, how would you deal with that? Like, how would you, how would you deal with that? Tell them to stay home. <laughs> Tell them to stay home. You can help them. But I don't know. It just seems so complicated. Or give it something like super exciting. You would just keep wanting to tell them about it. I would. I'll be like, don't feel bad now. Do you know something like super exciting is going to happen to you? So don't worry about it. Right? Like. But I also don't know if I'd want to. I, I hear people's thoughts. I feel like I can't choose with this one. I'm not going to. No. <laughs> <laughs> Any strong feelings, Fiona, Liz? Both sound equally horrible. Uh, <laughs> um, I think a younger version of me would have wanted to um, know people's future because I think young me would have thought, oh, well, you know, I can keep this under wraps and there's nothing I can do to change it. So whatever will be, will be. Um, that being said, older me uh, now knows the burden of, of kind of of seeing things coming up down the road. 
Um, and that is, that's a terrible thing too. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't like those choices either. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull a Switzerland like Sadie and just say, nope, not gonna choose. Nah. I'm sort of feeling the same way as Liz and Sadie. And I, and I think that like, there's, I like, I feel strongly that people need to make their own decisions and you can't really influence them. Like, you know, younger people, you often have a view of like, like, like worldly advice. Like I've lived through that. You should do that. But like, the point is that you have to live through it and figure it out yourself. And so I can't even really see people listening to me if I like knew what was going to happen to them. With that said, I would still choose that one. And then I'd set up, like, I'd just make my career out of being like, uh, a seer and I get like a crystal ball and I do the whole thing with like a shop and I just like have fun with it. Um, and then people will be like, wow, that fortune teller is really good. Um, and yeah, just enjoy that. I think it's all about the business. I was going to say, I feel like Fiona and her like monetizing. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to make a living out of it. If I'm stuck with this horrible ability, me as well, take advantage of it. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you. Um, so I, uh, you're not getting away without answering that. Back it up. Back it up. I think I'm going to choose knowing what people think just because after all you describe it, I'm like, I don't want to have to deal with knowing what everybody's life is going to be like in like, I don't, I don't want to know what's going to happen to them later. Cause I feel like then you're going to be like, this is going to be such a big burden on you. Cause you're going to know, like, you look at every person, you'd be like, you know, you're going to see everything. No, thanks. No, thanks. I'm just going to deal with, and then at least if I know what they're thinking, then I can just like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to avoid you. <laughs> I'm going to stay away from you. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> maybe it will help a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. No, those are horrible choices. Thanks, internet, for these questions. Um, <laughs> all right. Okay. So I'm going to talk about my book. Well, Every, I guess every few months, we get together and we kind of figure out what topics we do for this book chat. And we each get to pick what we want. And sometimes it's because we have a book that is perfect for the topic that we want to talk about. Uh, sometimes it's because it's one of our favorite genre. Sometimes it's because it's very timely or seasonal. And sometimes for me, it's because there's a book that I want to read and I need a deadline. I need someone to help me to nudge me towards reading this. So I pick Magical Realism entirely because I want to finish Sharks in the Time of Saviors by Kawaii Strong Washburn. That's like really the reason why I picked this topic, everyone. Um, so this is a debut novel by an author that grew up in Hawaii, and it comes highly recommended by authors like Marlon James and Tommy Orange. So I was like, you know what? This sounds like it's going to be great. And it is a very good example of sort of what I was describing earlier about what a magical realism book can do. This is the story of the Flores family, and they live in Hawaii. They are a working class family, and they're struggling to make ends meet. In the beginning of the story, they were forced to relocate because the sugarcane industry has collapsed. That's what sustained a lot of people that live on the part of the island that they're on. And because they have got up and left, they had to relocate and to move to another island. 
But just before they left, they decided that, you know, for one day, we want to be a family that don't have to worry about putting food on the table. We want to be the family, just like all these people that come to our island for vacation and just to enjoy and leave all their worries behind. And so they signed themselves up on a cruise that is designed for tourists. But halfway through the cruise, Noah, their seven-year-old child, fell overboard and into the water. And we're talking about the shark-infested water that they are traveling on. Malia, the mother, she, she jumped into the water right away, trying to get to her son. But she realized that there were sharks swimming right underneath her. And they were all swimming way faster towards Noah. And she knows there's no way that she'll be able to reach her son. Watching in absolute terror, she realized the sharks, the sharks actually brought Noah back to her, back to the boat, in their jaws, safely and carefully as if Noah was made of glass. And when Noah came back, when she, he was rescued that way, the story of Noah spread all across the island and everybody has heard about this miracle. And soon strangers are trying to offer help for the family. People are donating and helping them. And for a while, they were able to stay afloat. And they believe firmly that this is from the gods. The Hawaiian gods have given them a blessing and it's going to take care of them. Then on New Year's Eve, they were celebrating and his older brother, Dean, and his friends, they were playing with fireworks. But one of them wasn't being very careful and fireworks exploded in his hand. And holding this bloody mangled hand they were all trying to like find a way to stop the bleeding and Noah felt this urge to go and touched the friend's hand and when they connected he could feel the inner workings of the hand he could feel the bones he could feel the nerves he could feel the blood vessels he could feel everything that is inside and and how it's broken but how it is supposed to be and as he was overwhelmed by this weird sensation and this knowledge of what this human hand is supposed to be like, the hand was yanked away from him because the ambulance has arrived. And so they have just ushered the kid onto the ambulance, sent him to the hospital. And Noah was left thinking like, what was that? What was that all about? And then the next day, they were told that when the kid got to the hospital and when the doctors unwrapped all the makeshift bandages, there was barely a wound left as if the hand was never injured. And soon everybody wants to come see Noah. They have heard about this miracle that is Noah and they wanted Noah to help. And Noah insisted that when he sees these people, He's going to have to see behind closed door because Noah doesn't actually know what happened, that he is not able to recreate what happened on that New Year's Eve. And he doesn't know what to do. And he's desperate to figure out how he did what he did, whatever he allegedly did, because 
he's not able to make that happen again. But all these people are coming to him with all the hopes and you can see in their eyes that they rely on him to be able to perform these miracles again. This is a story, a heart-wrenching story of, of what happened to a broken family told from all the different points of view of the family members. We, we learn about what happened after these incidents to all of them. The parents who are trying to make a better life for their kids, they believe that the mainland is the promised land. They have to do everything to send their kids to the mainland, and then they're going to get a better life. Even if they have to suffer on the islands, even if they cannot make the ends meet, their goal is to get the kids out. The kids themselves, we have Noah, who is devastated because he can't do what everybody thinks he can do. And all the expectations are weighing down on him, including his own, especially his own. Then we have the brother, Dean, and the little sister, Kaui. Both of them were living in the shadow of this miracle brother that they have and that they were just told to believe in him. They were told that, like, you know, Noah is going to save them all. And yet they are trying to be the best. They are trying to figure out what is their place in this world and trying to carve out that little spot, trying to get noticed for once because their parents seem to be completely oblivious to them, never pay them any attention. It's all about Noah and they just wanted someone to notice them for once. And the suffering of the, the family and, and all the hardships that they go through mirror the, the island itself, the what Hawaii has to go through when the whole land is taken over by the tourism industry and people coming in thinking that they can just put their sorrows behind and come and have a vacation and enjoy it and forget about all the things at the expense of the people who actually live on that land, who is entirely dependent on the tourism industry, entirely dependent on these people that have taken away their home and, and what we can do to maybe think about differently what this world should be like without us going in and taking advantage of the people that live there. It's a great example, I think. It's, it's very much grounded in reality, but a good example of what these little magical elements can do to help us kind of maybe think about the world a little differently. It is a great book. Even his writing is very much that dichotomy of the, the very lush, beautiful, elegant environment, but also has that very down-to-earth, very vulgar, gross, the grotesque that are that are just opposed in sort of one sentence sometimes. It's a beautiful story. Looking forward to next book by the author. So this is Sharks in the Time of Saviors and it's by Kawaii Strong Washburn. And I think it has a amazing cover. That's one that I really do quite like. So yeah, so that is uh, my pick for the day. So question number three, would you rather be the ghost that follows a family around or follows people around, or would you rather be haunted by a ghost yourself? Haunted. Because being a ghost sounds super boring, and I've always thought, though. 
like you can't do anything. You can't pick anything up. You're like dependent on what other people are watching on the TV. Like, what if they have really bad taste? Just go to another house. Well, am I am I stuck in one house? Like, am I stuck no, to one family? You're just a ghost like, that can wander around. Can I? Sure, can I? why not? It's I your, don't think that's ghost. how it works. I don't think yeah, that's. I how need it works. more details. Yeah, like what like, kind of ghost am I? And like, does one mean that you die, and one mean that you live? Because then I choose live. But <laughs> like, or is this like an inevitable, like you know, eventually? But technically, when you're a ghost, yes, you're dead, but you're also alive forever. Kind of, so yeah, but not in like a you can't eat anything. But you don't need to. Yeah, but like what? What? What is the point? point if you can't taste a donut? Okay. God. Yes. <laughs> like, what's the point if I can't have a pie? Like, yippee. So yeah, I, I, if I'm haunted, that's fine. I'm sure we could come to some sort of like understanding with each other about these are the haunting times. This is Korean's private time, so I'm sure we can work something out. Yes, ghosts are that nice and cooperative. Liz, what do you think? Uh, well, that's a good point. There, there are nice ghosts and there are not nice ghosts. I mean, according to what I've heard, I've never been, I don't think I've ever been haunted by ghosts before. Maybe there's just a super nice ghost and they're like very unobtrusive. Um, who's to say, right? So I don't know. And if you were being haunted for a while, does it kind of, do you get kind of acclimatized to it? Right, you get desensitized. Like, oh, at first it was scary, and then later it's no big deal. If so, maybe the haunting, right? Instead of just kind of being in this middle ground. Again, this is all conjecture because what really is a being a ghost like? Um, you know, instead of being in this middle ground, can't have meaningful relationships, can't eat food, can't do all the fun things you used to want to do. So um, I'm gonna. Reluctantly go with being haunted. I feel like oh, we're all thinking too hard on this, Sadie. What did you think? So, in all of the supernatural entities that are out there, ghosts absolutely terrify me. If I am reading or watching anything about ghosts, I that is what freaks me out the most. I don't. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because they defy logic in my mind whereas if you lock the door and close your windows you can keep things out but you can't keep ghosts out they can just walk right through and so I, I they terrify me um so I am leaning towards being a ghost myself so that I do not have to be haunted because even if it was a good ghost I just don't know if I could get past the initial introduction of that entity into my life um, yeah, so I am, same as I am reluctantly and hesitantly, but I'm going to pick, um, being a ghost myself. Say so you can be my ghost if you want. Um, <laughs> I think. Thanks, Fiona. Thank you. <laughs> in my limited understanding, um, I think I like, I've just decided that I think ghosts like can't touch or move things. And then like poltergeists or whatever are the ones that can do horrible things. So I've decided that even if this is a bad ghost, um, it can't actually like hurt or touch me or my family. So I actually kind of think that would be cool to be haunted once you got past the terrifying part, if they can't hurt you and say you would never hurt. <laughs> I was just going to say, I wouldn't hurt you. I promise. <laughs> Again, you'd come to an understanding. (laughs) 
as long as one is willing to be haunted and one is willing to haunt, then I guess it's good. It's good pairing. All right, Corrine, what magical realism book have you got for us? Does it have ghosts in it? Well, Virginia, um, no, but aren't we all haunted by something or someone? Don't say that. Sadie and I would not like to hear that. No, thank you. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's true. And I guess technically my main character is kind of haunted by their past, but not just their past, but their father's past and their father's father's past. So it's kind of kind of that generational haunting. And yeah, and the shadow of colonialism, my favorite topic. So yeah, this was this was a tough pick to pick because unlike Virginia, I did not have a book in mind. And I tend to equate magical realism with this kind of like elegiatic, very like very literary, very slow, confusing writing that I just want to say, just like say what you mean. Just say what you mean. Is the baby a turnip? Not a metaphorical turnip. Just let me know if this baby is a turnip and then we can move on with our lives. So it took me a while to find a book that was magical realism that I really enjoyed. And I found that there is actually an author whose books I always read that I definitely did a search in all of their reviews and magical realism as a term came up. So I'm going with it. That is the author, Natasha Pulley. And the book that I chose to talk about is her second book. Her first book uh, debut being The Watchmaker uh, of Filigree Street, which I really enjoyed. But I would like to talk about her second book, which is The Bedlam Stacks. I think Natasha Pulley, I don't know how she's arranged this, but always has the best, most beautiful covers in all the world. And you just find your like fingers gravitating towards pulling them off the shelves because they're so beautiful. This book is about uh, an ex-East India Company smuggler named Merrick Tremaine. It is 1859, and he is convalescing slash trapped in his ancestral home in Cornwall, the Heligan Estate. He is an ex-India, uh, East India Company smuggler because there was a terrible accident and he almost lost his leg. Right now, living is an agony. Um, he can barely walk. He can barely make his way through the day. And he is in a, a deep depression and kind of looking forward to his future. As he kind of slowly gets acquainted with his ancestral home, he starts to notice strange things that his older brother, Charles, does not. Merrick starts to notice statues moving about the estate. Um, he starts seeing trees that explode and catch fire and threaten to burn down the entire house. He noticed the crows kind of talking to him. Charles, his brother, threatens to send him to an asylum when he starts to share these, uh, these visions or these happenings that he sees. And so when the East India Company comes to Merrick with a essentially suicidal proposal, Merrick jumps at the opportunity. The East India Company is desperate for someone to go to Peru to get what they need to make quinine to help with an outbreak of malaria in India. However, all the expeditions that they have sent of young, strapping English lads in the bloom of health, all of them have not returned. So they give Merrick a choice that he can go with their help 
and bring it back and they will set him up with a great life away from his brother and some independence or he can stay and be locked in an asylum. Reluctantly, even though he can barely walk, Merrick decides to take the offer and undergoes the perilous journey to Peru. When he gets there, all is not quite as it seems. This is the Amazonian side of the Peru. It is deep, dark, impenetrable jungle. When they get to the part of the forest that they need to start harvesting for cuttings, the people there show a salt line, a line made all of salt that surrounds this part of the forest where the trees are that he needs. And they tell Merrick that anyone who crosses that line will be killed. And so there Merrick learns the fate of every expedition that has been sent. Expedition after expedition after expedition has crossed this salt line into the forest and never returned. The only person that can successfully cross the salt line and return from the forest is Raphael, a mysterious Peruvian Catholic priest who claims that he knew Merrick's grandfather, even though that is impossible. This is what I would call the slowest of slow burn stories. It is a mystery. It is magical realism. It's a little bit of a romance. Um, but it all unfolds very slowly. And in fact, time and its mysteriousness and the way that sometimes it goes fast and sometimes it goes slow is, is built into this story. Um, Natasha Pulley has clearly done her research about this uh, period in Peru, and it is kind of infused with the history of colonialism in that particular area, as well as the folk traditions of the people who lived there. I really enjoy Natasha Pulley's books. I loved The Watchmaker of Filigree Street and the sequel to it, but they are slow. If you're looking for like an action-packed, thrill-a-minute, hard-hitting narrative, you're not going to get it. But you're going to get a lot of like beautifully written scenes of people sitting at a table and a description of their cutlery and how they look in the candlelight and glances at each other and then glances down back to the cutlery and slow meditations about the meaning of things, then this is a book for you. If you want to just, as we said, slow the world down, you may want to uh, check out the wonderful magical realism stories of Natasha Pulley. Thank you, Corinne. That does sound slow. <laughs> <laughs> I, put, I immediately put it on my to-read list, but I don't know how I'll do with a slow one. It's, it's, yeah, I'm going to give it a try, though. It's beautifully it written, and I really enjoy, like, a slow burn. So it really worked for me, but it is not, like, a traditional narrative that's driving it. Like, the characters are driving it, and because they're so, like, cautious and damaged they move very like they move incrementally towards something so yeah i, I really like natasha police writing all right last would you rather question for the day before we go to fiona's book um this one hopefully is less uh let's just hope this one has less uh, controversy about it um so my question is 
if there is a magical door that just happened to show up one day in your house, would you rather it take you to a place in the real world, like an actual place that exists? Or would you rather take it to some random imaginary world? And the caveat is, I don't know what this imaginary world is going to be. It could be great. It could be awful. You just don't know. So a real world, that a real place that you know for sure what it's going to be like. And then a fictional, random, imaginary place. I have a, I have a clarification question before we go on. I know. I'm sorry. Does the real world place is the only magic, the magic door, or is there, are there other magical elements, just the magic door? Okay. All right. I feel like you're asking me to decide like whether I'm an adult who's ready to like let go of my childhood fantasies. Like, I feel like this is this moment for me. I'm like, this is it from here on in. Cause I think I'm going to actually choose the real door despite having spent like most of my life, you know, like wanting that fictional door. This is a big character development moment for me, but like just all the time I am like wishing for this real door because I live on the West coast and my family lives on the East coast. And it has been a really tough, like aspect of my adult life. And I'm always, you know, being like, when are they going to invent matter transportation? Uh, Like, when can I? And, you know, it's especially a lot harder right now with um, with COVID and the idea that I could just walk through that door and be in my parents living room. I will take that. And I feel like since the door would be in your house and also in their house, that would be seen as sharing a household. So right now, perfectly (laughs) fine. Perfectly fine. (laughs) Good point. What does you want your door to go to, Liz? Yeah, I definitely want the real door. I don't, if I'm, if I'm traveling, I don't like uncertainty. I like to have all my notes done offline as well as my online, you know, where am I getting my SIM card? I, I want to know, you know, I don't want any bad surprises. And if something not so pleasant comes up. I want to know how to deal with it. So I need to be prepared. Um, Yeah. And it seems a heck of a lot more appealing than some kind of Star Trek holodeck where they basically take all your atoms and rip them apart and then put them all back together, hopefully in the correct sequence. So um, yeah, door to the real world. Definitely. Uh, It's the transporter, Liz. It's not the holodeck. (laughs) (laughs) So sorry, so sorry. <laughs> Please don't come at me. People in the fandom. Oh, Sadie. I, I feel like I'm similar to Fiona, whereas part of me really wants that fantasy door because my whole life I feel like I have been waiting and dreaming for that fantasy door to be able to go into some magical world. But yeah, if, as long as I could... Like, is the door just one location and it's always one location and it's the same location? I know I I, I need the rules. I would need to know the rules a bit more because <laughs> if I could change the location, that would be very, very useful. Because like Fiona, my family does not live here and they're much closer than the East Coast. But um, I've been trying to convince the world to build a high-speed train between here and the Kootenays for a very long time and it has yet to happen so this door would be really nice but also yeah it'd be really nice to just 
walk out to Ireland or walk out to to France or to Amsterdam or any of the, all of the places that I would like to visit. Um, so I think I will decide on the, the real door. Corinne, would you be the only one that is going to pick the fictional world? Unfortunately, I read uh, Sean and McGuire's Wayward Children series, so obviously not. <laughs> that is a great, great set of novellas about children that find magical doors, and some of them when they come back. <laughs> and they're deeply traumatized by what happened to them in their magical worlds. Um, yeah, I mean, quite honestly, I'd probably just stay home. Because, um, you know, I, I choose to live here. <laughs> this, this is my choice. This is my choice. Um, so, you know, if a magical door appeared, like, it depends. Like, do I know where it is? Do I know what the temperature is? Like, do I have my credit card with me? Probably not. I'd probably just be like, well, that's inconvenience. But like Fiona, I could probably monetize this. So I would set up my own, like, as an anecdote to air travel, which everyone hates and is very uncomfortable, just come on through my magical door at like 200 bucks a pop, flat rate, flat rate, which is pretty good, I feel like. I didn't expect these questions to turn into business opportunities. And <laughs> <laughs> that's late stage capitalism for Apparently. you, Virginia. <laughs> what about you, Virginia? Which door would you pick? Uh, it's a real world. I don't need. No, I'm too old for random magical things that happen. <laughs> no, thank you. I'm good. <laughs> I'm even thinking like, because working from home these days is so convenient. Like I get off work and I'm home, right? So I was even thinking like, my door should just take me to work. And yes. Then just come. <laughs> That's how sad it is. The number even, like, even before this. If I don't this. have to take the bus for like two hours and I can just get home like four o'clock, four or five, I'm home. For a flat rate of $200 a month. You too. Like, I'm okay with that. So, yeah. Yeah. So sad. Oh, we're just all, like, very practical. Well, again, we've read enough books with magical doors that we know that on the other side of that door is usually some, like, metaphorically oppressive dictatorial regime of some magical person that's, like, slaughtering kids or animals, like, and then you have to fight them and then your best friend slash mentor dies and you have to go through a period of suffering. Like, we know what happens on the other side of the door. None of it's good. And the characters, the characters usually, like, the end result is they realize that home is where they wanted to be all along. And they could have just stayed there. Or you could do a Narnia and just be an immortal being in the other world. Yeah, but then unless you like makeup or nylons, then you don't get to be that. <laughs> All right. Well, again, we learn a lot about each other and ourselves. <laughs> like Fiona said, character, important character moment, development moments that these book chats does for us. So Fiona, last but not least, what magical realism book have you got for us today? Okay, uh, I'm going to talk about Tanya Tagak's Split Tooth. And I feel like this fits really well into magical realism because its genre is sort of undefinable. <laughs> um, it is everything. And so why not put it in magical realism? When I picked it up, I was expecting a little bit more autobiography, even though it's in the fiction section. Um, it is 
uh, based on some aspects of the author's life. It's about an unnamed young woman growing up in Nunavut in the 70s. And I was sort of taken aback um, when I started reading it and getting these magical realism elements. Like, oh, I obviously have no idea what this book was going to be. It is just a beautiful book that includes poetry and some illustrations, some like weaving of myth within it. And uh, though I really enjoyed it, I don't think I I fully grasp uh, what it is about. Um, after like I was very focused on the like single person narrative of the book and reading some of the reviews, I think there's a lot more depth there, just like uh, cultural, what is the word I'm looking for? Just a lot of metaphor um, there. So it is, uh, yes, about a young woman, none of it, and it's her coming of age story. And it talks about a lot of difficult experiences, uh, sexual abuse, drug abuse, poverty, and essentially this young girl uh, is going to school and she experiences bullying. There is some positive social interaction when she meets her best boy um, who sort of uh, takes care of her throughout the story. But there's also these scenes of um, <laughs> sexual interaction with a fox um, that, or the Northern Lights. Um, and she does eventually become pregnant with the Northern Lights children. Um, and again, as I was reading that, um, it was like, whoa, what's happening? I'm very confused. But I do think that, you know, some of that maybe um, more metaphorical than some other magical realism books. Uh, and like I've read some reviews talking about disassociation and, you know, that being a part of sexual trauma. And so it's very interesting from that perspective. And the, one of the narratives that I found the most interesting is uh, the one of her, of these twins uh, that she's pregnant with. And one of them represents basically um, goodness. And one of them is all that is awful. And they balance each other in this beautiful way that was quite compelling. So if you are ready to sort of just give yourself up to a book um, and go along for a ride, this was just really, really compelling and beautiful, but also uh, very upsetting and, a, and different than anything that I have ever read. Strongly recommend it for those who are trying to read more Indigenous voices, uh, because I did feel like there were those aspects of like just a different kind of narrative that I loved and appreciated, but maybe wasn't well, what at all, wasn't at all the, um, the type of narrative that I am used to reading. Thanks, Fiona. Um, I think you put it really like I think sort of summarize what what magical realism is like. If you, you kind of have to give yourself up to the book. Like I think all of them are kind of like they just have to suspend your beliefs and just go with it and see what happens. Um, then maybe the the turnip is just the baby. It's just what it is. It's so whatever that. 
happens. So you just kind of have to go with it. So yeah, so thank you for that. Um, thank you everyone for picking a magical realism book. And if you have any other suggestions, audience here for books that you would consider a magical realism book, please do put it in the comments for us. We'd love to know what you have been reading. Anybody else has any things that they need to say? I think today is over. We can like, we can all retire. We did a lot of thinking and like, just, it was, it was a lot. I'm done. <laughs> those questions. It was those questions. It just, yeah, made us, made us examine our entire existence. And <laughs> We're going to have to live with our choices now. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for entertaining us. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you again next week. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.